What a joy to be here tonight. And, uh, you know, God has such a great sense of humor. I uh, came into Yorkton uh, back in early December, dropped something off with Randy, and he said, how would you like to speak in January? I said, love to. I had no idea what God had in mind for me in the next few days. <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk about the healing of God tonight from a wheelchair. <laughs> but uh, he's a good God. Uh, you didn't really come here to hear me tonight, so let's pause and ask the Holy Spirit to speak. He's the one we want to hear tonight. Father God, thank you. Thank you for bringing us here tonight. This is, this is a holy appointment. You have drawn us here from all over the place And we've come to hear you speak. So Lord, I invite you to uh, share your story through the Holy Spirit and through me. And so I give you this uh, time, give you freedom to lead us where you would have us go and to touch us where we need to be touched tonight, Lord God. If we go home from here having uh, good food and good fellowship and lots of singing and even some great stories and we haven't met with you, God, then tonight's a a disaster. So uh, we need a touch from you tonight, Lord. In your precious name, amen. Well, I was born in the spring of 1954 to a couple who had, I was to learn years later, come back from the war changed people. Many people my age didn't realize that their parents came back from the war years damaged. And uh, they came back with a lot of baggage. Both of my parents were raised in religious homes, but not saved homes. And they went off to war and they discovered that the world could end. And they became alcoholics there. And they came back from the war with drinking problems and with all kinds of other problems. I was born in April 1954, as I said, the youngest of three children. I have a sister who's six years older than I am. Uh, I had a brother who was three years older than myself, and then I came along. Uh, A month after I was born, a group of kids in the neighborhood playing with my three-year-old brother decided to hold his head under a pump and pump water over his head. It was spring, it was cold, and they pumped the water over his head and he got pneumonia. And he was rushed into hospital and in Swan River, Manitoba, just across the border into Manitoba. And they didn't know he had a problem. And the nurse gave him an injection of penicillin to help him. And he died right there that moment. And my parents' marriage died with it. They could never forgive each other for his death. And so it became a a life of turmoil. Now wasn't 2018, it was the mid-50s. You didn't divorce. You just put up with things. And so my parents stayed together. And they set about to see who could make the other one most miserable. And they hurt each other every day. And my sister and I grew up in that. And we watched our parents try to kill each other and try to wound each other spiritually and uh, emotionally, physically, everything. By the time I was 18 months old, my dad was working in the north up by Lynn Lake, putting in roads up there for the mining. He farmed in the summertime. And my mom just decided she had to do something different with her life, so she abandoned us. And I was given to an aunt and uncle, and my sister was given to my grandparents. And my mom went off to Regina to become a hairdresser and to get a career. And she came back in 1959. So those early years when I should have been with my parents and building relationship with them, we were with relatives. And I'm thankful for those relatives, but it wasn't the same. My sister and I, to this day, there's a real distance between us because we were raised in different homes. So anyways, growing up in that kind of an atmosphere, uh, you had to kind of learn to survive. And that's what I became. I became a survivor. Uh, 
When my mom came back, she opened up a hairdressing shop in a laundromat in Swan River. The hairdressing shop is still there to this day. When I go back, I, I drive by it all the time. Because in that laundromat was a room at the back where my mom did hair. But off the hairdressing shop was a storage room. And she convict, convinced the owner of the laundromat to give us the storage room to live in. So there was one bed in there, a little blue table with folding wings, which I still have to this day. And that Christmas, my mom won a black and white TV from the sand store. That was our belongings. And in the morning when we got up, I would run down to the corner store. And in those days, they used to sell bread by the slice and bologna by the slice. So I would, she would give me some cash and I would go down to the corner store and buy enough bread and enough bologna to get through the day. Because we had no refrigerator, no stove. We would get coffee and hot chocolate and drinks from the drink machine in the laundromat. And my mom would run the business from there. And I grew up on the streets, just putting time in, doing whatever I wanted to do. Looking out for myself. And so I became a con man. I learned how to use people to get the things that I wanted, even as a child. By the time I turned 11, I was smoking and drinking and stealing and lying. And it was the year I turned 11 that my mom left for good in our little town. Now our little town was a, a small little town. Everybody knew everybody's business. And my mom wanted to hurt my dad. So when she moved out, she moved one block away from our house and she moved in and lived common law with a man, one block away. Now, you have to understand something. In the 1950s in Manitoba, if you were caught living common law, it was exactly the same penalty as manslaughter, 10 years in jail. It was a different time than it is now. And it was a horrific thing. And my dad was wounded deeply because he was humiliated in his hometown. So my mom worked in the red and white store in town, sold groceries there. My dad farmed and worked in construction. And by this time I started living with my dad. So my dad would go, especially in the wintertime, he would go up north to work on Sunday night. And he would come home on Friday night. And at 11, I would live at home by myself. And look after the house. Heat the home with wood stove. And, and uh, look after myself with my, using my wits to get by. And as I said, I became a con artist. Because I would go to my mom and I would tell her a story about how bad dad was treating me. So she'd give me 10 or $20, which is huge amount of money in those days. And I'd go buy a shirt that was worth a dollar. <laughs> and I'd use the rest to buy beer and cigarettes and whatever else I wanted. And when my dad would come home, I would make sure I would wear the shirt in front of him. And he'd go crazy because he knew exactly where it came from. And I can remember time after time he'd rip that shirt off me and throw it in our cook stove and burn it there. And then later he'd feel bad. So he'd give me 20 bucks. <laughs> and I'd buy another shirt. And some cigarettes. And some beer. And that's how I survived through those teen years. I became a user of people. By the time I got to be 15, 16 years old, I had to got the beginning of a drinking problem. I hung around with guys 18, 19, 20 years old, partying and drinking and tearing around. I'd grown up with the party scene, either with my mom or my dad. We'd go to parties. I can remember as a child having parties that would last for days on end and all us kids would be locked away in a bedroom while the adults partied in the other room. And that was just normal for us. That was our normal. And so by the time I was 16, I was just a normal guy doing what my parents did. About the time I turned 
what, 17? They closed down our high school in our town, and uh, which was, I actually lived in Bozeman, which was just north of Swan River, and they moved us into Swan River. That was the days of the miniskirt. My, my wife's going to kill me later for telling this story, but that was the days of the miniskirts. And one day I'm walking down the hall in the, in the high school, and my wife's cousin was there, and she used to wear these tiny, well, I called them wide belts. <laughs> and she was bent over in her locker getting something, and as I walked by, I gave her a little tap on the posterior there as it stuck out. And out of nowhere, a punch connected, and my wife decked me. My, well, the gal that was going to become my wife. So at 17 and 18... Marion and I, we became an item and we ran around and spent our times together and by the time she was 17, we discovered we were going to have a child. And so in January 1973, we dropped out of high school with no education. I got my first job I'd ever had. We rented a house, we got married, and had our first child all within six months. And our parents and our friends all turned their backs on us. And we were alone. And we had to make our way. And it was difficult and it was really hard on Marion because I didn't know what love was. I needed Marion in my life. I needed someone like her. But I didn't know what love was. And everybody I knew, their marriages had only lasted a few years and they were cheating on each other and sleeping around and running around. And I just thought that's the way it would be for us. And so I would just take off partying and leave her at home. And by the time she was 20, we had three babies, no education, no money, no future. And life was falling apart. To understand our story, though, I have to go back to 1972, I guess it would be. It would, would be 72. When our son James... 74. 74, I guess it would be. Yeah, 74. 1974, Marion discovered she was having our second child. So we invited a few friends over. We're going to have a party. Because that's what people do. They party. And so we invited a few close friends over and... We had a drunk. And one of my friends that night thought it would be funny if they just slipped a little something into my drink. And so they added something to my drink that night and it literally drove me crazy. And I went on a spree, jumped out behind the wheel of my car and went tearing around the countryside. And on my way home that night, coming down the main street of Swan River, at over 100 miles an hour, I hit another car. And our whole world changed. Police took me and put me into the hospital because I was all cut up and banged up. And they put me there and, and I just got up and walked out. Woke up the next morning and I was back at home. Marion had found me and brought me home. When I went into the bathroom the next morning and looked into the mirror, you could hardly tell who I was. My hair had been cut back, my forehead was cut, my legs were cut, my arms were cut. The car that I totaled off that night, the car I was driving, that was the night before the first payment went through on that car. And of course, because I was drunk behind the wheel, I had no insurance. So I ended up having to pay four years on a car that I totaled off. The police decided that they were going to make an example of me, so I was charged with driving to the common danger, which means that I had used my vehicle as a weapon. And the penalty is five years in jail. And I went into court for the first time in my life and didn't know whether I'd get out. Thought maybe I might be spending the next five years in jail. On a technicality, they couldn't prove 
the charge, so they dropped it down to just a DUI. And I lost my driver's license and was fined and just was, it was like I had no idea where I was heading with my life. I was driving truck at the time for modern dairies. I was a milkman. My wife always jokes when people ask her about how she married a minister. She says, I didn't marry a minister. I married a milkman. He became a minister. <laughs> but I was a truck driver. Three months after that, the company I worked for, they got a special permit for me to drive during the daylight hours. And three months after I had that accident, at Roblin, Manitoba, I was coming with a load of dairy products. And I came around the corner and a farmer had been hauling water for his cattle over the highway. And of course I was making up for poor timing and was driving way too fast and I come around the corner and I hit that ice and all of a sudden the truck became an airplane and I put it 28 feet through the air. And when I hit down onto the highway it just exploded. This huge... Uh, explosion from the, from the truck hitting the pavement. and A local farmer heard it and sent the police out to me. And as the police arrived, they came running up to the, the truck. and They got me out of the truck. They were scared of fire. and They got me out of the truck. And as they got me standing on the pavement, this police officer looked at me and he said, Man, why are you alive? And I stood there shaking and I thought to myself man why am I alive my life is worthless it has been nothing since the day I was born well of course that accident meant I lost my driving permit lost my work lost everything now Marion and I were in a lot of trouble we were scared we had no friends we had no family we had nothing all of a sudden, Marion's uncle phoned us up one night and said, I'd like you to come over to our house. I'm going to have a, uh, a little get-together at our house, and we'd like you to come. I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, it's an Amway party. I'm going to teach you how to sell soap. <laughs> Boy, that sounds like the kind of thing a young guy wants to do. Eh? <laughs> but, you know, we were scared. We were lonely. So we went to the party. At the party that night, we met a couple. They had been part of something that many of you in this room don't even know ever took place. But in 1972, in Ebenezer Baptist Church, in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, there was a revival that broke out and went around the world. And you can check all over the world and you'll find ministries that started up, Bible camps, Bible colleges, church plants, and they all started in the mid-70s because there was a great revival of God that broke out. And thousands of people were converted to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, three couples, three young couples that were touched by that revival heard God saying to them, you need to move to Swan River and you need to plant a church. <coughs> Excuse me. So they quit their jobs they packed up, they came to Swan River to plant a church. And they spent a year in prayer. And for a year their prayer was, God, we don't want to start a church by transfer growth. We don't want to rob Christians from other churches. We want to save the lost. And so for a year they prayed that God would bring them the worst of the worst. And they shared that at the 10-year anniversary. They said, we prayed that God would bring us the worst people in town for us to witness to. And I was the first convert under that ministry, and my wife was the second. I'm not going to go into the details what our home was like, but I was into all kinds of sinful behavior at that time without the Lord. And for this, these Christian couples to come and witness to us and share and pray for us. They used to stop at the end of our driveway 
and pray the blood of Jesus over themselves for protection before they would come onto the property of our yard and come in and visit us in our home. And then when they would leave, they would pray again and ask God to cleanse them of any defilement that had come on them while they were in our home. That's the kind of life we lived in small town Manitoba. That's the kind of life people live in Yorkton, Saskatchewan. A year went by, almost. The book The Exorcist came out. The movie was being released in November. And the book came out. And I went to the public library and I got a copy of The Exorcist. And I got home from work. I had a part-time job at that time. And I got home at supper time, 6 o'clock in the evening. And you have to understand when I say this, I had never read a book in my life. I could hardly read. I wasn't educated. But I was into this kind of garbage. So I sat down and I read from 6 o'clock in the evening till 6 o'clock the next morning. I read the book The Exorcist. Cover to cover in one sitting. And I closed that book the next morning and I knew one thing for sure. I knew that not only was I working hard to go to hell, but I absolutely deserved to go to hell. And I knew I needed help. George, the man who would become my pastor, he was selling cars in town to support himself while they tried to plant this church. And so he was at work that day and I waited impatiently for five o'clock when I knew he'd get off work. And when he got home that night, I was sitting in his driveway. Now I'm going to... I'm going to get a little emotional because it's as real today as it was then. I sat in that driveway and when he came home, I said to him, Okay, George, I believe I need Jesus. Can you tell me how to have Jesus? And he took me into his house and we went upstairs. And I'm not saying it has to be this way for you. I'm just telling you my story. We went upstairs to this little office and we got down on our knees. And I was such a liar, such a con man, that I said, George, how do I know this is real? Maybe I'm just conning myself again. Maybe this is just another one of my deals I'm making to try to get ahead. I said, how do I know? And he said, if you need to know, God's going to give you a sign. So we got down on our knees in that office up there and he led me in a little sinner's prayer. I don't remember what the words were. But we sang the song, Refiner's Fire. Boy, when I invited... When I invited Jesus into my life, fire came down. It came down on my head and it went down through my body and down to the soles of my feet. And it came back up and out the top of my head and it took all the garbage and all the filth. It took it all and I was clean before God for the first time. Now I'd love to tell you everything has just been really easy and good since then. But then I'd be lying to you again. For the next little while, we, we grew. We were in that church for 10 years. And oh, it was a struggle. There was so much in my life that I had to deal with. It was the mid-70s. And things were happening in the church that most people didn't understand and know what was going on. And in the conservative church, there was great fear over this new movement that was breaking out everywhere called the charismatic movement. And so in our little conservative church, we were taught to stay away from those crazy charismatics. Don't have nothing to do with them. 
And there was no teaching on the Holy Spirit. There was no teaching on spiritual warfare. There was no teaching on the spiritual gifts. We were taught to stand upon the word of God and our lives were to match the word of God. And we were taught that anything God was leading us to do, he would always verify with the word of God. So if God was leading us, it would be found in the scripture. We could stand on the promises. So that was the beginning of our journey. We were also taught that prayer was real. Now I wish I could tell you they taught us how to pray. They just thought everybody knew how to pray. I didn't know how to pray. But they kept telling us how important prayer really is. And I've spent the last 45 years trying to learn how to pray. Because I realize prayer is that important. For about two years I really grew as a Christian. And then the movie Star Wars came out. Now this three, three couples who had planted the church, and I am not saying anything bad about the Mennonite people here, because I love them dearly. You are a I'm a Mennonite pastor today. But they were from a strong Mennonite conservative upbringing. My upbringing was the streets. And I wasn't Mennonite, even not by name and not by birth. We looked forward to the coming of Star Wars. And Mary and I went to the drive-in to see Star Wars. The next day I got together with the deacon of the church and I said, Man, we went to the drive-in last night. We went and saw Star Wars. And this man who I respected, loved, looked at me and said, If you were really a Christian, if you were really saved, you wouldn't go to a show like that. You must not be saved. You must be damned. And I walked out of his home that day and I had lost my salvation in my mind. I was damned. And that meant it didn't matter what I did with my, the rest of my life because I was going to hell anyways. So I went out and started working my way to hell again. And it was during that period of time that I got involved in drugs and all kinds of things because of the pain. And for two years I just went wild. Got into all kinds of things. Young fellow that I chummed with, that did drugs with, he was 19 years old. Him and I were out one night we were tearing around the countryside, hopped up, ripping around in the car. And all of a sudden, he started to laugh. And he says, man, if we get killed out here tonight, is hell going to be hot for you? Now, here's my advice to you. Don't ever say that to anybody who's hopped up on drugs. Because, man, did I go on a trip. Somehow I got back to our little mobile that we lived in. And I laid on the floor of that trailer that night and I died a thousand times. Marion sat with me all night trying to keep me sane. Trying to help me to hold it together. As I was just going crazy. Because if I died I was going to hell and I was going to hell stoned. It was a terrible night. Again, I don't say you should do this, but I woke up the next morning and I thought to myself, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I went into the bedroom and I grabbed my Bible and remember I had been taught that you could stand on the Word. And I opened my Bible looking for help and I found Romans 7. It says, I don't know why I do the things, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know why I do the things that I do. I want to do good, but I do bad things all the time. There's this war going on inside me. How am I going to overcome these bad things that I do? Praise God, there's victory in Jesus. 
And I rededicated my life to Jesus Christ right there and then. Well, I didn't know what I should do. So I thought, there's only one thing I can do. I've got to go back to that deacon. And I've got to get his help. So I go to his house and I knock on his door. He hollered, come on in. And I opened the door and I walked into his house. And there he was sitting with his feet up on the coffee table watching Battlestar Galactica. I never said a word to him. I just said, thank you, Jesus. Because Jesus taught me a lesson that night. We base our walk with God on what God tells us to do, not what people tell us to do. We stand on the Word and we listen to the Word. And we walk with God, not with people. Well, few years went by and we grew in the church and then there were some terrible recessions that hit Manitoba. There was no jobs, no work and we had to leave. We had to go looking for a life somewhere. I was by that time a parts manager in a, in a large farm equipment dealership and I only knew one thing for sure. Whatever I'm going to do with, with the rest of my life I don't want it to be around people. <laughs> so I packed my bags. We moved to the Palm, Manitoba, and I took a course in carpentry. Jesus was a carpenter. That should be a good trade. And I became a carpenter. And during the day when I would be on the job with the carpenters, there'd be dirty stories going around and dirty jokes and... Lots of, lots of men were having affairs with women in the town and cheating on their wives and all kinds of garbage going on. And all day long I would join in with them. Then at night I would come home to my wife and children and pretend I was a good godly man. And the hypocrisy started to kill me. And so I decided that it was time either to get serious about my walk with Jesus or I would give up on my walk with Jesus. And so that winter, we shut the TV off. I stopped reading books. I stopped reading newspapers. And every spare moment I had, I sat with my Bible and I read my Bible. And I said, I'm going to find the answers or I'm going to give up on this Christianity. One or the other. And I read ten times through the New Testament that winter. And twice through the whole Bible from cover to cover. And as I was reading through it one day, I came to Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And God spoke to me. I looked at that verse and I said, there's the answer. And, and you might not believe this, but, but I, was, I meant this. I said, God, just kill me. I'll be a martyr for Jesus. Just, just kill me. I'll go to heaven and, and I'll, I'll, be, I'll be out of this. And the Holy Spirit spoke that night. I didn't know it was the Holy Spirit at the time. But God spoke to me and said, I never asked you to die for me. I'm asking you to live for me. And in that moment, in that second, the Holy Spirit taught me something I had never heard in church in 10 years. I taught that, I, I learned that God wanted to be Lord of my life. Some of us think Jesus just came to earth to save us. No, he didn't come to this earth just to save us. In Ephesians chapter 1, there are 19 things that were accomplished at the cross and salvation is not one of them. Salvation is part of redemption. 
When Jesus died on the cross to redeem us, redemption means he came to bring forgiveness and salvation to us. So theologically, and this is the only preaching you're going to get from me tonight, theologically speaking, salvation is a secondary issue. Jesus came to restore fellowship between us and the living God. He came to be Lord of our lives, as was intended in the Garden of Eden. And sadly, too many of us are settling for just being saved, but we're not walking in the cool of the evening with Jesus. That night, I bowed my will to Jesus and said, from this moment on, you are Lord of my life. I will do anything you say for me to do. You give me the instructions and I will do it. A couple of weeks later, our pastor at that time, up in the paw, stopped me after church. And he said, Ken, can I have a word with you? And I said, sure. And he said, the board and I, we had a meeting about you last night. Now, folks, when people had meetings about me, I was in trouble. That had been my pattern my whole lifetime. And I thought, what have I done now? And the pastor took Marion and I aside and said, we think as a board that you should go to Bible school and go into the ministry. And I thought, you people are stupid. <laughs> I have no education. I hardly can read and write. I don't know what I'm talking about most days. I can hardly hold my life together. And you think I should go to Bible school. I'd love to go to Bible school, but I'm not the kind of material they take at Bible school. So the pastor said, I'm going on holidays. I'll be gone a couple weeks. Give me your answer when you come back. So two weeks passed. Marion and I talked it over. And we thought, well, if we're giving Jesus the lordship of our life, maybe he wants us to go to Bible school. So if it's God leading, we'll go. So when he came back, we said, well, we'll check it out. We'll think about it. Now, about the same time, another thing happened in our life that we didn't understand at the time, but it plays an important part. Our church did something that we were attending that we had never seen done before. At an evening worship service, they said, if anybody wants to come forward to be prayed over, to receive gifts from the Holy Spirit, you can come forward. Well, we didn't know who the Holy Spirit was. We didn't know anything about it. But I think I was pretty much the first person up there. And in the back of my mind, I knew exactly what I wanted from God. I was all ready, I was ready to tell God what it was that I needed for gifts. And those elders laid hands upon us and they prayed for us and there was no lightning and there was no thunder and there was no manifestations and they all looked at us and said, yep, God has given you these gifts. And I said, nope, I don't want those gifts. Those aren't the gifts that I want. And so I walked out of that meeting last that night and I didn't accept those gifts. I left them right there. Because I didn't believe that God had called me and was going to equip me for the type of ministry that they were saying. So we went off to Bible school. We checked out the Bible school. The pastor sent us to Nippon, Saskatchewan, to Nippon Bible Institute. And we met with the president there and we looked it over and we thought, okay, if this is where God is leading, we will go. And so I told the president at the end of our visit, I said, this is great, we'll go home, we'll work for a couple of years, we'll get some money, and yep, we'll come back and go to school. And he said, nope, that's not how it works. He said, if God's calling you here, you'll pack your bags and you'll be here in a month. And so Marion and I were hit with a crisis of faith. Would we actually let Jesus be Lord of our life 
And would we give up our jobs, first good jobs we'd ever had in our lives? I had a government job working as a carpenter, making big money. Marion had a great job. And now people were saying we had to give it up and go to school and live on this thing called faith. And so we went home and we argued with God for a couple of weeks. And then we said, no, Lord, if you're Lord of our life, we'll give up our jobs and we'll go by faith and we will trust you. And so we packed our bags to go. Now you're going to start to think I'm a bit of a clumsy guy because just right as we were packing the truck to get ready to go, I fell off the step. And I ended up in a cast. (laughs) And I couldn't help. But at that time, Marion and I had a little girl that we adopted. She was one year old. We got her as a new baby, foster child in our home. And we had had her for a whole year and we had applied to adopt her. So, we, uh, uh, Marion and the kids and the pastor and some people from church, they were loading the truck. There I am sitting with my leg in a cast, playing with the baby on my lap. We're going to Bible school. We're giving up everything. We're going to go and serve Jesus. And the RCMP pulled into our driveway. And they had a document. And that document said we had to give up our baby. Because you see, you couldn't adopt children and take them out of the province. We didn't know that. And so we had to make a decision. Would we give up our baby for Jesus? We prayed. And they took Courtney and they got in a vehicle and they drove away. And the last we saw her, she was standing in the back seat of that car, screaming, Mama, Daddy, don't let them take me. Our pastor took our children, and they drove one way over to Nippon. Marion and I took our old van, loaded with luggage and suitcases, and we took the back road. And we drove over to Nippon, and we cried all the way. That's 30 years ago. I still can't tell the story without crying. But for Jesus, it was worth it. And we knew she'd be okay. So we went off to Bible school. And we pledged at Bible school that Jesus would be Lord of our life. That we would do everything that he opened the door for us to do. And boy, I'll tell you, don't ever worry about giving up fun for Jesus. Because I'll tell you, every time we turned around, something was happening. They would phone the school and they'd say, well, we need someone to do this job. Yep, we've got just a couple for you. Ken and Marion would go do it. Yeah, we need someone to direct Bible camp this summer. Yep, Ken and Marion will go do it. We'd never been to Bible camp in our life. We became the directors of a Bible camp. Yep, we need someone to pastor a church or to, to preach or to go to jail. Or, Yep, we'll do it. And so off we went, serving the Lord. The week before our graduation, we got a call from a church in southern Manitoba that said, we heard about you guys. Now every time somebody said that to me, the hair stood up on the back of my neck. What do you mean you heard about us? Well, we're looking for a pastor, and somebody said, you're the couple. Yeah. (laughs) They said they read my book, which was when I did my, my um, resume up, it was 50 pages long, and it, it became known as the book. <laughs> so we went off to this church to candidate. And we went to the church, and I wrote the best sermon that was ever written. I was going to preach my heart out there. And I got up that Sunday morning to preach, and Jesus said, No, you can't preach that message. I said, okay, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to go out there and I want you to preach Jesus and Jesus crucified. Second Corinthians. So I went to the pulpit with no sermon that morning and I said, I've only got one message that I'm going to bring to this church and that's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we're going to lay everything on the altar to live for Jesus Christ. He's got to be Lord or He's nothing. 
So if you're not willing to give him the lordship of your life, don't hire me as your pastor. And a week later, we got a 100% call to go and be their pastor. It was a hard ministry. Hard people. We only had one man in the whole church that had not been divorced and remarried and through all kinds of scandals. and So only one man could serve in office in the whole church according to our constitution. <laughs> we had everything you could think of. Street walkers, bikers. It was just mayhem. But well, the answer to every question that came up was Jesus. What would Jesus do? Give your life to Jesus. Follow Jesus. That was my answer to everything. And the church exploded and it grew and people came. We had people driving for 30, 40 miles out of the city of Winnipeg, 30 miles out into the country. They would drive by 25 or 30 churches to come out to attend our church because in our church we had our focus on Jesus. Four years we pastored there and God did a great work and finally we felt it was time for us to move on and to, to go somewhere else. And so we did, we, we moved and we went to a couple more churches and I started to have a great unrest in my spirit because people would come for counseling and I would counsel them and they would go home sick and wounded. And I said, there's something wrong with the church. The church isn't like what the Bible's like. In the Bible, when people came to Jesus, they got healed and set free. But today, when they come to the church for help, they're sent to secular counselors, and they're sent to secular doctors, and they're sent, they're sent somewhere else. And the church really isn't helping people. And I be able, began to, to cry out to God. Now, I told you the one thing that that early church had taught me was to stand on prayer. And we had always emphasized the word of God and prayer. And in about the 1990s, we started seeing something happen that didn't fit my, th my theology. I remember preaching a sermon on the sufficiency of God's grace. And in that message, I said, whatever you're going through tonight, God, his grace is sufficient to see you through whatever you're going through. And a woman that had just been diagnosed with breast cancer, when she heard that message, she said, then I believe God's grace is sufficient to heal me of breast cancer. And she got up and walked out of that service that day healed. And she's still healed today, by the way. I hadn't preached on healing because I didn't believe in healing. Healing stopped with the apostles. What did God think he was doing healing in the church? We don't allow that. Got a phone call from a pastor. He says, do you believe in the devil? I said, well, of course I do. Devil's in the Bible. Well, would you come down here? We've got a young man that's demon-possessed, and we need, we need to pray for his deliverance. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I drove from Richard, where I was pastoring, 30 miles down to Steinbach, the sweat running down my back. I was so scared. I thought, Lord, please, please, have it not show up. <laughs> and the young man came from help that day. And I didn't believe that demons could touch Christians. And yet right there in the middle of our praying for him, we had a demonic manifestation. And I watched that young man show every sign that you can believe and more of demon possession. And it seemed like God just kept showing me things that I didn't believe and I kept going back to the Word and I found it in the Word and I had said He'd be Lord, so I decided i got to start believing in this stuff because the Bible says it's true, but I don't know anything about it. So we left the pastor and we went back to school. I thought more education, that would be what, I would, if I get a little more education, you know, I'm kind of, very Canadian, right? Doesn't matter what happens, we'll just have another study. <laughs> just pay some more money to have another study, and that'll cure everything. 
doesn't cure anything. But I went back to school. And while I was at school, working on a master's degree and a a master's slash doctorate degree, it was suggested that I do a Bible study in the book of Ephesians. And so I started studying the book of Ephesians. And as I studied Ephesians and Colossians and started writing my theses for for my master slash doctorate, I found a phrase in Ephesians that I didn't know what to do with it. It's called the fullness of God in Christ. And when you look in Colossians, it says that the fullness of the Godhead, meaning God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, live inside of Jesus Christ, who lives inside of us. And I said, oh, wait a minute, God. It isn't happening. Not in the church today. We're not living in the fullness of God. We're living like a bunch of wounded children. And so I spent the next about five, six years doing a doctorate study on what it means to have God living in his fullness inside you and me. Eventually, the studies came to an end and we went back to the church and God kept us on a journey. Each time, I refer to it as my crisis of faith because each step of the way, it would be a time when I'd come to a crisis, I'd have to decide, can I believe God for this or can't I? Can I practice this or can't I? Do I think my God is big enough to honor his word or don't I? Well, I guess the next thing that happened that was life-changing for me was one day as I was in my office pastoring, dealing with a hard situation in the church, one of those couples that I just couldn't help, didn't know what to say to them, didn't know how to help them. And as I sat there at my desk frustrated, I said, Oh God, I wish my dad was alive. I wish my dad would have been a godly man and that he was alive today. And I could just pick up the phone and I could phone him and I could say, Dad, I need help here. Tell me what to do. And God spoke to me. And he said, well, I'm your dad. Ask me. And and being cynical... I said, yeah, I wished it was that easy. And he said, well, it is. Jeremiah 33.3 says, Call out to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and wonderful things. Do you believe the word of God or don't you? (laughs) And I said, wow, can that really work? And so I bowed my head and I said, Father, I'm in trouble. Can you tell me what to do to help this family? And bang, 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 Bible verses started coming to me. And within an hour, I had met with that family and we had solved the problem that was in their life. And their life was turned around. And I said, wow, God still speaks to people today. (laughs) Now, I'm a really slow learner because that was in about 2002. And I've been struggling with that right up until today. I have to remind myself every day, God still speaks. But you see, we live in such a noisy, cluttered world today that we're so busy listening to all the junk around us, we can't hear when God speaks. And yet he's speaking to us all the time. The thing is, do we believe the word of God? If you want an interesting study, look up the word, word. In scripture, and you'll find out there's two types, two, two phrases that are used. When it speaks of the written word, it's called logos. When it's speaking about the spoken word, it's called rima. Look up every time in your Bible where it says God spoke. And you'll find that it means rima. He spoke. He speaks. He speaks worlds into being. 
He wants to walk in the cool of the evening and he wants to speak to you. But we get so busy we don't listen to his voice. So God has had me lately on this journey of faith, this crisis journey. Will I be quiet and let God speak? Marion and I, a couple years ago, decided to take early retirement. We left the ministry. I went and started doing some carpentry work. She came on with me, and our son came with us, and we started a little business, and we hated it. <laughs> the, the, the calling is to be a pastor. I just have fought it for 30 years. And finally, I had to accept that this is really what God called me to do. And I go all the way back to when the gifts were given to me that night in the church in the, in the paw. And they prayed over me and they knew very well that the gifts that were given to me were gifts of teachings and gifts of prophecy. But see, I didn't believe those things were around today. I didn't believe in prophets and I didn't believe in prophecy. So I said no and I denied it for years. So I'm just learning to use those gifts now. But I've come to understand that God is speaking and he wants to lead us into his fullness if we will trust him for the blessing that he has for me. So let me show you how it works in a practical sense and then we'll be done. Back in early December, I'm part of a mentoring program and the people who are mentoring, mentoring, I'm one of the mentees, so they're mentoring me. And the assignment on this particular day was a Wednesday, the 14th of December, was get alone with God and ask God, what do you want to do in my life, God? And then sit down and be quiet and listen. And when God tells you what he wants to do, you have to make a decision. Yes, God, I will accept that. Or no, God, I won't accept that. And then if you say yes to God, the assignment is to pay attention for the love and grace of God demonstrated through what he does next in your life. So I got alone that afternoon, December the 14th, I prayed to God and I said, God, what would you want to do in my life? And God spoke very clearly. He said, I want to build your faith. I want to teach you something. I said, okay, God, I'm open to that. You go ahead. You have your way. Whatever you want to do, Lord. And at about 4.30 in the morning, I woke up sick to my stomach and went running into the bathroom. And somewhere along the way, I don't know if I tripped or blanked or God pushed, but I went crashing into the wall and broke my ankle and my leg. So my ankle is broke down here and my leg is broke over here. And all I have, I don't have a cast on, I just have a bandage around it because next Thursday I'm going to get the staples out and they're going to give me a cast, I hope. <laughs> so the next morning I get up and my leg's all swollen. She's telling me it's broke. I'm saying it can't be broke, I'm still walking on it. She says it's broke. So we go to the hospital, and sure enough, it's broke. Hospital makes arrangements for me to go straight into the city for surgery. So off to Regina for surgery. So I get to, I'm going to condense the story here. So I get there for surgery, and the, the doctor who's in charge with giving me anesthetics comes in and says, you've had the flu. And I said, yeah, I still have an upset stomach from it. I'm, I'm still fighting a bit of the flu. Oh, well, we can't do surgery then. Because what if you get sick under the anesthetic? You could, you could throw up and you could swallow that and you could get it in your lungs and you could get pneumonia and you could die. So, you know, and I'm saying, wait a minute. I got plans. I got things I want to do. Let's get this leg looked after. And he hummed and hawed for a moment and he said, well, we could give you a spinal block. We just give you a needle in the spine and you'll be fine. You'll just lay there wide awake while we operate on your leg. I'm thinking, this is a good deal. Now, I had to say to the doctor, I've only got one little thing here that you need to be aware of. 
I am scared spitless of needles. So don't talk about it. Just give me the needle. I'll get through it. You'll think I'm going to die there. I'll turn so white. But I, will, I won't faint. Give me the needle. He said, it'll be easy. Ten needles later. <laughs> I, it actually took effect. And I was frozen from here to the bottom of my feet. And they did the surgery. So I'm laying on the table wide awake and uh, they have a blanket about here so that I can't see what they're doing and they're straightening the leg and, and it's a mash unit I've got. <laughs> These guys think they're comedians. They're all joking and they're telling stories and they're teasing each other and I'm wide awake. <laughs> so I'm laying there listening to all of this and all of a sudden the doctor says to me, did I read somewhere that you're the pastor of a church? I said, yes, sir. He said, I suppose you've got people back home praying for you. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, you know, we know for a fact that when you have people praying for you, you heal faster. Now, listen. When you open the door for a pastor, <laughs> that's like fighting fire with a pail of gas, right? He brought the subject up. So I said to him, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to heal twice as fast then. And he says, why is that? I said, because I teach the people in my church that they shouldn't just pray for me, but they should be praying for you as the doctor that you have a steady hand and that you do good surgery and that your nurses are competent and that everything goes good in this room. So I'm bound to be healthy really fast because we're praying for all of you. And it got really quiet in that operating room. <laughs> and... And then we started talking about Christmas and I started talking about Jesus coming. And so finally the operation was over and they wheeled me to the door and I said to him, well, I'm going to be praying for all of you and I, I pray God blesses you this Christmas and that you discover the real meaning of Christmas is Jesus Christ. And the doctor says to me, you know, normally our patients don't talk to us. <laughs> he said, normally we don't hear this kind of stuff. And I said, well, I'm going to be praying for you. So I get back home next day, and I remembered that I had one part of my homework I hadn't done. And that was I was supposed to stop and look for the grace and love of God. And so I sat there, and I thought for a minute, and I said, God, show me the grace and the love in this. And God said, well, he said, I needed you to break your leg so that you could have surgery. So that, so that you could tell them what Christmas is really about and the coming of Jesus. And then God said, and by the way, have you had any pain in this broken leg? And folks, I have had no pain from the time I fell and broke the leg to this moment. I, I can walk on the leg, except it's just a band-aid. And he told me if I walk on it, I'll likely break it again because I, I won't know about how much weight I'm putting on it. But there has been no problems, no pain, no agony. You see, God needed someone to go into the operating room. And I had said to him, build my faith, Lord, whatever it takes. And he said, well, that's okay. I'll break your leg then. <laughs> and I sat on my Chesterfield in my, or in my recliner. And I said, Lord, it was worth breaking my leg to know this kind of love from you. You see, the enemy lies to us. He tells us we have something to fear from God. We should hold back. We shouldn't give him lordship of our life. We should stay in control. There's too much to give up. Look at what you'll lose. Look at what you'll give away. And Jesus says, if you would just give up your life and let me be Lord, what I would give you is love and grace and mercy. So that's the journey that, that we're on. And when I get to this place, 
I don't know how to end because the story hasn't ended. We're still in the middle of this journey with him. He's still doing things. He's still Lord. I hope he's not going to break any more bones for a while. <laughs> but you know what? A couple of weeks of, a couple of months of having a broken leg is nothing. If it would mean one person in that operating room would start a journey that would lead them to Jesus Christ. It would be worth it. It's a little price to pay. Some of you are here tonight because God has brought you here and he's desperately wanting you to start a journey with him. He's a gentleman. He won't force you. But maybe you have never invited Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life, Lord and Savior. And tonight he's saying, just trust me. Just come and see what I have for you. Some of you are saved, but you have never, ever given him lordship of your life. Some of you have never experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I left that out, sorry for doing it, but it was about 10 years into my Christian walk that I realized that when I had prayed the sinner's prayer, that refiner's fire that came down on me was a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Nobody taught me, so I didn't know what to call it. And finally, God had to tell me that was my moment. But maybe he's got a moment from you tonight. And he's inviting you to come and trust him. And let him be Lord of your life. Let him be in control. And if he's talking to you tonight, I encourage you, come. I know Randy will come up and share in doing some prayer and we'll be here. And I don't know if there's anybody else, but if you need someone to pray with you, maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ. What a great night to do it. Maybe there's something that God is speaking to you through this testimony. Maybe, maybe there's an area that he's saying to you, you know what? There's this one issue in your life. I'd sure like to take care of that and clean that up for you. And you've been afraid to let him do it. Why not come and get it dealt with tonight? So let me close on a, a word of prayer. And then I'll be done unless you want to ask me something or, or want some time of prayer. Father God, thank you for the way you write your story in our lives. Lord, I know I left out so many important things and so many wonderful blessings and so many great moments, but uh, there's only so much time in an evening to share. I thank you, Lord God, that this story, my story, and the story of every believer in this room doesn't end here tonight, but goes on for all eternity. There's so much more we're going to get to experience and, and uh, we're going to be able to do with you. And so, Lord God, I just uh, thank you for speaking tonight. I thank you for uh, just touching our lives and touching the lives of so many in this room. And Lord, we invite you just to continue the good work that you've begun in our life. And Lord God, I say it again, you are Lord of my life. For any glory that comes out of this evening or out of my life, may the glory be yours fully, Father. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you so much.